You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. This is the Land of Legacy Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dime. And we are... Right in the heat of fawning and turkey poult and all kinds of new life coming to the land. And that is pretty much the topic of this week's podcast. Last week we had a great time up in Michigan at the Crockery Creek QDMA Deer Co-op. We went through all kinds of questions and discussions and it was just a great time. I really enjoyed it up there, And uh, but it's good to be back home. And today, um, went out, checked on our Stratton food plots, looked at some of the Heritage Blend and the Game Changer beans, just to kind of see how the germination was going. Now, Matt and I planted them two weeks ago, I believe, or a week ago. A week ago. I, yeah. A week ago, we finished up, and uh, we've had a, a quite a bit of rain. And uh, late we have. It's been awesome, because... I think I finished the last food plot, and it was still a little. It was kind of a little, a little sticky. There was a little bit of rain that happened in between the planting over the few days, and um, planted the last food plot. And it's we've probably had a couple of inches of rain since then. So, uh, really timely rains, and it's uh, the food plots are off to a great start. I was sharing with you, Matt, when before we were recorded. Wow, I really stumbled over it there. And uh, there was a lot of green lines right out through there from when we planted with the Genesis drill. It's really looking good. Man, they they are. And it's we've gotten the rain. Now we're getting that sunshine. Um, and they are just, they've popped. And I'm going to be excited to see just how quickly from this stage, these pictures, that they take off. Because oh. I anticipate, because there's so much moisture, um, weather looks great, that they're just going to grow, grow, grow. You know, I was talking to Grandpa. He went with me when we were checking on him. And. It feels like a greenhouse outside. Mm-hmm. It's very humid, very yep. hot. It's just kind of muggy. Um, everything's green. It just it looks and feels like a greenhouse, which is awesome growing conditions. That heat and that moist soil, those plants are just going crazy. So it'll be exciting to watch it all unfold, and we'll be updating you guys throughout the entire growing season and kind of the things we're tweaking and moving and, and adding to it or all things food plots will be updating you throughout the growing season. So, And that's the cool part because we've got some plots that are just absolutely brand new to us. We've got some that have been planted for years um, and some that had some great cover, great thatch, and others that did not from this past fall. So we have a lot to be able to learn from and share, um, and we'll be able to do that with you guys and, and walk you through that process this summer. Oh, yeah, and we, we have a lot of – since we have some of these new food plots that haven't been created uh, until probably a month ago, um, there's a lot of things we have planned that are a little bit different. We've talked about on the podcast with the edge, um, planting native grasses and wildflowers along the edge um, that we mm-hmm. will be preparing throughout this summer and getting it ready for planting this this winter. So um, a lot of edge feathering coming up. So a lot of great topics and ideas that hopefully you can implement on your farm so you don't want to miss the summer Late spring, you don't want to miss any podcast. Let's no, just say that. No, no, no. How about that? Uh, we we have something to uh, talk about every week. Hopefully, you can incorporate on your piece of property or wherever it is that you like to hunt. So, anyway, one reminder, and we just actually filmed this a little segment is the Cutie May National Convention is coming up July nineteenth through 
through the 22nd. How could I forget? Right? And it's going to be a blast. It's going to be a good time. Hope everyone is going to come down there um, and join us for that convention. We we talked about it last week, I think on the podcast too, um, with the folks from, from Michigan, um, just trying to get more interaction and, and get people down there because we had a blast last year, and that was our first convention. Um, we're going back to speak, um, have a great topic, and actually you just touched on it. Part of it is going to be this edge development and and. You know, living on the edge to transition areas, what that can do to a property, um, how deer are going to utilize it. So it's going to be really fun, really interactive. Um, and then we're also recording a live podcast down there. So if you do attend, um, be sure to watch the schedule because you could join us on that live podcast and be a part of it. Um, so that's pretty exciting. I will say, you know, we're going to give tidbits throughout the summer as we prepare for this. But the the seminar that we're going to do is really, I'm super pumped about it. Uh, just because I haven't seen, I haven't ever seen a seminar like this, the one yeah. we're building. I haven't seen anybody break it down in, into this simple of, of a uh, definition of, of edge and how to incorporate and manage a property in very black and white type. Um, it, it's funny, it sounds so simple, but that's the thing; like it's it's not being implemented no. through a lot of properties. Um, no. But we're going to share why and how and what that will do as a result to hunting as well. And not and not just you know the simple thing as well. I need more edge. I want to make more openings for food plots. But there's so much more that we can do, and so we're going to cover all of that and all these other type of management practices to incorporate more edge, improve the edge that you may already have to where you should have a dynamite spot to where more edge the more species the healthier the population and for you deer hunters the more daylight activity as long as you're you're hunting appropriately yeah right? you're listening to the other podcast to where you're hunting <laughs> yeah. appropriately so um if you follow along you can really change your property so i don't know i'm really excited about it yeah it's, it really will be a great one um to showcase and, and talk about and present and as always there's gonna be tons of questions um, there's usually a small window for that, but, oh, you're going to be on a habitat panel too. Oh yeah, that's right. They're yeah. always do that habitat panel. I'm not sure which day that is. Um, uh, last year it was Saturday, was it Saturday. Cause I okay. sat on it last year yeah. and we presented Friday and I that's sat on right. it Saturday and that's this right. year we are presenting on Saturday. So we're recording a podcast yeah. on Friday and then we're working on something else to showcase saturday night We're, we are going to keep that a secret yeah and it's only going to be showcased good. there so you got to go there to see it that's right all righty um as i mentioned before uh fawning season yes and i know let's just go ahead and say it if you find a fawn don't touch it just let it be <laughs> yeah um let's just lay in the middle of the road and then maybe try to get down there but um it, it is fawning season and, and we actually saw a fawn while we were in michigan Mm-hmm. Um, running through the timber. Um, and it's also turkey poults dropping, and, and there's all kinds of new life coming. And so it's important that we understand what's happening for us and then lo- looking around and seeing how we can use that to our advantage as far as our management. And that's what this week uh, we're going to be talking a lot about some stuff that we've hinted about or we've dropped tidbits throughout the, throughout the 64 podcasts yep. that we've done. This one, we're actually going to devote the entire podcast to this topic, and it and it all revolves around um, kind of a different way of management. And again, we always talk about, we're trying to approach things that, for, I guess, from a different mindset or a different approach. Um, I guess not just to say that we're different, but because oftentimes there's a lot of misconceptions out there, a lot of stories, fables, tales, um, exaggerated stories that uh, get told around camp. Um, so it's important to bring in a different view and provide that scientific background to support that view. Um, and, and this is regarding fawns, um, habitat and predation on those fawns. So Adam, you got an email from a client. It started as a text. Started as a text. Okay. Tell Uh, that story. So, you know, last, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, we talked about, um, managing for, uh, when when we look at how we manage, everybody wants to manage for deer, turkeys, and uh, we tend to overlook the little things, and we tend to overlook doing things that could improve the habitat for smaller game species, such as rabbits um, and quail and songbirds, whatever it is. Um, 
and we talked about how a rabbit is usually, I would rather improve the or increase the amount of cottontail rabbits on my farm and the amount of field mice and rats and everything like that. Because I would rather, if I have, if I'm going to have coyotes, which I'm going to, because you can, you, know, you could never completely eliminate them for an extended period of time. So you're always going to have some sort of predators, um, and hopefully, through listening to this podcast, you've accepted that they are a part of the landscape. So they are a good thing to have around. But anyway. We were talking about that, and a friend of mine said, hey, I was listening to your podcast about you would rather have rabbits on your property to feed the coyotes and fawns. And he goes, here's a video I got that shows how easy a rabbit is um, a meal for a bobcat. And it shows, it's a trail cam video, and it shows this bobcat walking down what looks like a logging road. And you see an eyeball, which is a a cottontail rabbit, bounce out on the edge of the road and kind of just like hop around towards the bobcat. Clearly, the rabbit doesn't see the bobcat, and the bobcat kind of just like, oh, here comes a free meal bouncing along, and he kind of locks up and slowly starts easing his way towards that rabbit, and that rabbit's still just bouncing around. And then, I mean, it was like the easiest catch for the bobcat. So easy. He just like hunkered down, took a few short little um, steps, Walked his way right up to this rabbit, and then it bounced out in the road, and he just took one big jump, and bam. Pounced on it. He had a fresh rabbit. Gonzo. And and that was a good, I mean, it was a great reminder of how easy a, a rabbit can be for a, a predator to catch. And, and we're going to share that video mm-hmm. as well. If, you, if you're watching on uh, YouTube, you can you will be able to see it there. But then we're going to post it on Facebook as well and um, try to put it here in the show notes with this podcast so you guys can see exactly what we're talking about, just how easy it was. Uh, it, you kind of chuckle, but you're like, well, it's the circle of life. But man, did that rabbit not know what he was doing and that bobcat make it look easy? It's so easy. It was like, man, even I could have I taken that rabbit out with a with a stick. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so and that, that was just a great reminder of the of the importance of small game species on your landscape. Yeah. Uh, I, I just think of, you know, there could have been a fawn laying 50 to 100 yards up the road, and that bobcat grabbed the rabbit. Now he's focused on that and not focused on trying to continue to hunt for a meal. There's a lot of takeaways. And and, and from this video, one of the first things that I guess I noticed is as you, as the video starts to play, that bobcat triggered the, the, the camera, the trail camera. And you just see it, honestly, the first couple steps is it's just walking. It's not It's not hunting, honestly. It's just, no. honestly, traveling down this road. And then as it approaches and that rabbit's, rabbit's out there just hopping around, bebopping, it's like, oh, wait, hold a second. Gear switched, I changed modes, and now I start to stalk a little bit, stay still. But it just goes to show that, hey, it's an opportunistic feeder. It saw an opportunity. It wasn't out there trying to hunt or it wasn't in that mode necessarily, but it used that opportunity, was extremely successful. Um, but that's just the importance of, okay, if I have many more critters out there on the landscape, that would be a meal for a bobcat, for a coyote. If there's that many opportunities out there, well, they're going to take advantage of it, right? So yeah, this absolutely. is just a great example to say, okay, hey, they're opportunistic feeders. The next thing... I guess that I saw was obviously just the presence of small mammals. And in this case, it was the rabbit. But how many, how many times have we talked about to either clients or, or honestly folks our age? Um, I know we shared on the podcast is, Hey man, we grew up rabbit hunting. Like that was, oh, a, yeah. that was a big part of what we did. Um, but nowadays not that many people are, are taking up that sport of rabbit hunting and you can have a lot of fun no one's really managing for it the focus is managing and we talked about this on the phone as we're kind of organizing thoughts and stuff for the podcast there's a focus on management for much larger big animals game. it's big all about game. the big game white-tailed deer even the and the wild turkey uh, around here that's what you go for um, that you don't really see many people managing for bobwhite quail or, or the small game species and, you know, going back to that hunting as a kid for cottontail rabbits, think about it like 
the same reason you were hunting rabbits while I was hunting quail. Mm-hmm. At the same time, both of the populations were dropping, declining, and and I even hunted rabbits for the one, same reason too. Once the once the quail kind of went away um, on some of the properties we hunted, we got we started hunting rabbits on some other properties that still mm-hmm. had a few. I can remember, man, that I I don't ever remember a good rabbit hunt on any of the farms other than conservation areas where they were managing specifically for Hedgerows, bobwhite quail, all this stuff, yeah. and so. Uh, I think rabbit hunting has died just as much as quail, or probably not as much as quail, but it's died quite a bit just because of lack of habitat. So there mm-hmm. aren't as many rabbits there used to be. And we talk, you know, you go west, and how many jackrabbits have you seen out west, Matt? Have you seen I, one yet? I don't I think so. I've been west. <laughs> well, I meant to oh, Kansas. Well, okay, Kansas, yeah. Kansas no, and Oklahoma. No, I've not seen one. Yeah, Nothing. you haven't seen one. And, and even when I was a first couple times I went to went out west, I was seeing them. And even a couple of years before you got here, I was still seeing them in Kansas and Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen one in in years. And, I mean, the jackrabbit is, is the populations are dropping drastically as well. So all these small game species are are dropping. And I think in, in what we when we look across the landscape, you'll see these small game species dropping. And there's concern for some of the bigger game species, like the turkey, specifically this year. The wild turkey guys are now concerned about the populations because it, it brought notice to things. And it's like there's we have to the little steps, the little things have to diminish before the big things. You really get that ripple effect with the mm-hmm. big things, and mm-hmm. and once we hit, once it gets to a point where we're like, whoa, what's going on with the deer? The coyotes are really, coyotes are really wiping them out, or whatever. Um, by that point, the small game are really going to be hurting. Oh, no and doubt. They're already hurting, but there are still a few of them out there. But by the point where the big game can feel it, the small game are really, really, really They've hurting. already taken their brunt. And, and that's why the other portion is I think it's we're out of touch or out of tune, honestly, what's going on out there. The I, I don't want to say the majority of hunters, but quite possibly the majority of hunters are. Um, we're, not, we're not understanding – I guess the life cycle, you yeah. know, this affects this. And if that is affected, then the next down the line, we're going to see a domino effect. Um, that just principle it, it, we can see and, and I guess use that, you know, it's weather's the same way. Um, even down to crops, like this affects this and then this affects this. Like we haven't realized that, or we aren't, we're not taking advantage of, of, the signs that we see right now occur on the, on the landscape. Isn't that a Newton's law for every action? There's an equal, equal and opposite, opposite reaction. reaction. Yeah. Uh, same thing with the, with the food chain and the, the landscape is if you were to remove predators, which I think that's a goal. It seems like for a lot of people, I want to remove predators, but when you do that, you could have a problem with something else. It, it has an effect and and it's probably going to be a negative effect. So well, you can't really have that mindset of I'm going to remove all coyotes and bobcats because they're eating my fawns. Well, you do that, you may have a huge increase in something else, a, another prey species, to where all of a sudden you have them, that prey species, competing with this prey species that you want to focus on. I, I think of, let's just say that you try to remove all the predators, you have a huge increase in rabbits and and groundhogs and all of a sudden they start eating the food plots because your deer are your and, yeah. and, and then you have a problem then because you're like well the, i'm planting them for the deer stop eating my crops yeah and and it's just another prey species things get out of whack really quick and, and it's important to note you're talking about something removing from being removed from that landscape the predators but it's the same thing if we add something to the landscape like uh, an invasive species. What's going to happen? Well, that invasive species doesn't have natural predators. Um, they are present in that in that environment, so it's going to grow rapidly and take over. And basically, any disruption, whether you're adding or removing from an ecosystem, a natural ecosystem, um, is going to have an effect On to a some large degree. Scale. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and that's why, like, when you think about it in a very simple terms of. We're not if if we have everything in balance of where we want it, and we're hunting. We're only we never really remove more than a third because or in, when it comes to the crops, you think about naturally speaking, you always want to have some for the next for the next uh, generation. So um, that's a definitely a, a mindset that we're trying to teach and preach to people to where 
we're not focused on one species, but let's focus on all species. Exactly. So there's, there's, I guess, foundational things. There's principles. There's understanding of, again, some. if I change this, it will have an effect on something else. Um, and before we get too far, that's why, I guess, Land and Legacy as a whole has taken a stance on let's manage for everything, for the benefit of everything, for the good uh, of, of everything, um, and keep long-term goals in mind instead of just short short-term benefits. Um, what is this, what is this going to look like later on in life? And I don't know how we got talking about this from a bobcat in the rabbit. <laughs> and we're talking about However, <laughs> uh, key principles of our business. So, yeah. It, well, I, key principles of, of managing land, whether you are a farmer, whether you're a cattle farmer, a crop farmer, a hunter, a conservationist, a bird watcher, whatever it is, these principles or foundation things are important just to understand, give you a baseline, a basis to build your decisions and management techniques off of. And it's not even, I'll, I'll piggyback on that, but when you say that, it's, this is the type of management that hopefully, and, and I know this because of conversations I've had on social media with people that aren't hunters, but they are nature enthusiasts and, and borderline anti-hunting they they agree with the same type of mindset of of managing the land for all species and not just managing the land so I can shoot a giant buck, but I'm managing the land so I have healthier deer, healthier turkeys, healthier numbers of of small game species, and and almost going back to the way God intended it, um, as in being as beneficial and as productive as possible. To where the way we manage, if done correctly, we should have adequate habitat for all the native species we should have um healthy healthy air healthy soil healthy water everything clean and and almost like the garden of eden um i'm going to piggyback on that and take a next step further and say not only are we managing for every species we're within those species we want to manage every stage of that species every every basically growth ring or, or, or portion that that life cycle of that species. So for example, we'll just make it super simple, a buck, a mature buck, four and a half and older, that deer to manage for that, you have to be managing your yearlings. You have to be managing year and a half old, your two and a half, three and a half, so on and so forth. Like you have to be managing, have those all present to be able to have a mature deer and, and long-term be able to benefit from that. Oh, for sure. And, and, and Trees, when it comes to same this way. is the definition, I know we have said this, but conservation preservation is we like, cons- we, we believe in conservation because it's the wise use of our natural resources. I think, um, and it's very clear from the beginning that once we had cursed land, we were called to be a, a, a land manager and, and caretake over the land. But after the curse, we were going to be fighting these thorns and thistles, as they say. And, and and basically, we're going to be fighting with nature and other species that are conflicting and putting pressure on the way it was designed. And that comes with invasive species, overpopulations, disease, all these terrible things that we have to deal with. So trying to replicate nature and manage it the way your area was managed. So we say this a lot where we live in a landscape that was managed by fire and grazing. That's the way it was managed. And so if we can get back to that, that's going to make it... It may take a little work to get it there, but once we get it there, it'll be much easier to continue managing in that in that now, way and having an, a extremely beneficial landscape. It's much harder to get it back to that than it will be. Basically, the, the, the next five years, let's just say, is going to be much harder than it will be for the next for the twenty years following that to keep it in that same system yeah. or to keep it in that same productivity. Pro- productivity our, so our kids will thank us one day oh, yeah. when we get it to where a breeze. they have uh they have a very productive cattle operation with great hunting because of the work that we did well and, and uh, they're gonna be they're gonna be the cattle farmer that's that's on the porch kicked back drinking lemonade and like yeah i'm farming today yeah. but it's just gonna be so much easier it's gonna be so much different than the than i guess the struggles the things that we look at and see across the landscape today. It's it's night and day. Totally, yeah, it, it, it totally, and and it goes with that whole when we just talk about man, we're we are just ranting on it today. But, um, <laughs> um, I, I think of the farm. I was actually looking at it today while I was checking on those food plots. Is there's a 
I mean, numerous, ton, way more acres in what I'm getting ready to explain than acres of, of, the, of the opposite. And it's acres that are not really managed other than with fire. They don't have enough growing for grazing. They don't have hardly enough growing for habitat. Um, and it's just because of lack of management, because of lack of time. But as we progress and we get more time and we devote and we use more efficient machines to get it back, we're going to have a huge majority of the family farm and, and the Prairie Hollow property that are able that are that we are able to graze and maintain for healthy habitat for wildlife than we are of what we have right now, which is uh, not really ideal habitat. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we, you kick out a basketball in the landscape right now, you're going to see it laying pretty open. And a lot of our timber, um, just because of no underbrush, because of closed canopy. So um, that goes right in to what we're going to now get into the actual message of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, back to the video. So another takeaway that as I, as I watched is like, that was an automatic meal for that bobcat. Like, so You know, before easy. we do this, it was it was ironic that we were chasing rabbit rabbit trails while talking about rabbits. That is ironic. <laughs> yeah. great dad joke yeah um so it but it's an automatic meal he didn't have to go out of his way he didn't have to try it he basically and, and from a predator prey standpoint what a predator is worried about is energy use exerted to have the next meal yes it was just a perfect captured thing he stumbled upon it but still the takedown was so easy so oh, incredibly easy. So easy. I think of that little video that I saw on Facebook of the little girl that, like, she comes running around the corner, like, do-do-do-do-do, and it's like, ah! If that rabbit only knew what was standing five foot away from him when he ran around that clump oh, of bush, right. he would have just been, like, out of there. But one thing I did notice, you said some key points that came to mind. For me, it was the rabbit jumping out into the road where there was no cover. Like, yes. you know, it was a road, but let's just say it was timber and there was no cover there. It went from concealed in the underbrush, early sessional to boom, right out in the open where the bobcat could actually see it. That's what comes to mind for me. And that's kind of the whole um, management change that we need to focus on as we'll discuss here. Yeah. So <clears throat> the important thing that we're going to now touch on is regarding, I guess, a comparison between small mammals, reproduction, and fawns, deer reproduction rates, um, and, and what these naturally occur at, and, and the vast difference between them. And, and we've, heard, we've talked about it before, is basically the number of predators that were on the landscape naturally, this and that. There was bears, there was wolves, there was bobcats, mountain lions, coyotes, foxes, everything. There were so many more predators in our area than what we see now. Um, But there also was a prey species more present and more populated than what we see now as well. Prey species. Yes, prey species. Many, many more prey species. Um, And so if we look right at, at rabbits... Since they were in the video, we're going to touch on a few more, but that's number one. Rabbits, I mean, the reason for that is just because they are probably one of the most common. Now, we'll cover yeah. some of the other common ones, but when you go to uh, across the landscape, across the country, a, a rabbit of some sort is a pretty common, whether it be whatever kind it is, but yeah. the rabbits are almost everywhere. Swamp, cottontail, yeah. jack, and so, everything. Um, that's why we're discussing the rabbit. So for a cottontail rabbit... They have three to five litters per year, and the average kits per litter is is five to six kits per litter. So in a given year, one single rabbit could pop out 25 rabbits in in a best-case scenario. That's a lot of meals. That's a lot of meals, a lot of easy meals. On on a bad year, that's 15 rabbits that are, are getting produced by one single rabbit. What does that tell you? To me, when we're talking animal science, if you will, what does that tell you when they're having to produce that many in a year at that high of a rate? They were they were they born were designed. To die. <laughs> yes, they were born to die. That's and then it sounds really harsh, but it, the the they wouldn't have that reproduction rate if there was not a high mortality rate built into their life cycle. 
If they if they didn't reproduce, they would have been gone at that high of a rate. They'd have been gone a long time ago, long long time ago. So that rabbit, that cottontail rabbit that you see across your landscape, um, if it's just one or two here and there, you know, it should be probably a lot more. But they're limited probably by the habitat that is present. Now, if you have more habitat for rabbits, you have more habitat for recruiting fawns. Um, for turkey poults, but then you also have many more meals to offset those fawns and those turkey poults. A meal that was just shown in the video that was super easy um, to catch and present. It, it, it's just, it was an easy meal. There, it can't be explained really any simpler than that. It was an easy meal, and if you have more habitat for that, you have more of those easy meals, which is less predation on a larger mammal. It, it, it's not rocket science. It's it's really not, but sometimes I feel like it is, uh, trying to explain it. Let, um, go ahead. Oh, no, you go I ahead. I was just saying, let's look at mice. Mice, this was, this was seriously mind-blowing um, uh-huh. and, and a little alarming. So if you don't like mice, this is probably not going to help your situation and it's probably going to fuel the fire a little bit more. But mice have 5 to 10 litters per year and up to 12 in a litter um so that's basically 60 to 120 mice that one mouse can give birth to and what did i tell you something like the the typical gestation is 19 to 21 days for each litter however as soon as that litter is born that mouse that gave birth oh mama mouse she can get pregnant right away and have another litter born 25 days later that's unreal. Yeah, made to reproduce. Again. And, and that's why every, I mean, for, as a kid, I remember watching National Geographic and all these wildlife shows, and it seems like old Mr. Red Fox. Oh, yeah. He's always hunting mice. Yeah. And it's like, no wonder. They're everywhere. Right. Hopefully, if the habitat's they right. They everywhere. And that's why I, I struggle with this a little bit. Um, when I talk about, when I think about building the house, and now I'm like, well, the yards are just a, that's a whole nother podcast, yeah, but I, yeah. and I sent you that one, but no. it's a, a, a lawns are such a environmental just just headache. Yeah. And so, uh, I'm like, well, I'd love to have a, a natural, like a native yard landscape, but then it's like, well, there's going to be mice there. And I'm like, Oh, I can't even imagine having to fight those at my house. Don't, my don't wife. Ex- well, we'll just release some, some coyotes and, and bobcats <laughs> and with that. coons. And, and owls. I'll be out yeah. there every night. Oh, 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 get over <laughs> bring here. Bring them in, bring them yeah. in. So, no, that, that'll be something I'll, I'll deal with anyway, gladly, to have yeah. a native landscape with lots of mice and lots of rats and lots of cottontails and, and bo- bob whites, all kinds of ground nesting um, birds. Mammals. So, yeah. Oh, and, and yeah. mammals. Yeah. Wood rat, one to two litters per year, two to six young. Per year, per litter, excuse me. Um, so you're looking anywhere from two to twelve wood rats produced by each individual wood rat, wood rat that's already out there. If you were to combine all that together, um, that's a lot of small game, a lot of prey species present on a landscape that we're not even talking about deer at this point, or birds, or any right. of the other small game. That's just it, the that's most common ones. That just we think the mammals, of. right? And and sure, you know. How much does a, a a predator eat? You know, quite a bit. But I still firmly believe and know that if those are more present on a landscape, if you are managing and understanding that, basically not eradicating that early successional cover, um, that's incredibly important to those smaller mammals, you will have um, less predation on larger mammals like fawns. Um, and... and you have to have the right habitat present. It's funny. We're talking about habitat for mice and wood rats, but well, it's so important. It goes back to what we talked about is if you're missing something, it's going to affect something down the road. And it's going to have, a, um, a, in this case, if you're missing the early successional habitat, a negative effect on fawning rates from two points. You don't have the escape cover. You don't have the, the cover to hide them initially. And two, you don't have the species that the prey, the predators, yeah, prey species, excuse me, um, to offset the predation on fawns. Exactly. I, I, and, and that's where whenever 
it goes right with that. We talked about this at the co-op meeting in Michigan was mm-hmm. um, if you look at a habitat or landscape and, and the habitat is not there to where the small, the small game is lowered um, to where there's not adequate amounts of these smaller game species. And you still have coyotes and bobcats, foxes, all these other predators. They put more stress on the bigger game species because there's not this buffer, if you will, or this this um, filter of small game species that they can eat before they have to move up the, the ladder or the food chain to the big right. game species. And that's where I think that a lot of our problem when we see these coyote numbers dropping dropping or coyote population causing a decrease in deer population is is i i think there's a lot to be said but i think one of the biggest things is the habitat is not there to have adequate amounts of prey species and specifically on the small game side of that so, yeah i know and, and there's no doubt there's no doubt and I, I i really it really gets my blood going when i see somebody focusing all their time or a huge amount of their time on trapping predators when their habitat and their habitat is horrible. Well, not not only that, it it's it's doesn't make sense logically from from a, a I guess a, a land manager, a wildlife manager standpoint, um, a landowner standpoint, however, whoever you are, to actively be really trapping and focusing on coyotes um, just to remove them because you don't like them, but then your your deer per square mile value is through the roof. Yeah. Or wait, you're taking now. Now you're focusing a lot of effort, time, and money on removing something that's going to help you in the long run. I, I that I don't I don't really understand. Um, so I, if you're actively trying to reduce deer, why are you actually trying to reduce things that are going to help consume and reduce deer too? Oh, totally. I, 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 it doesn't. It's mind blowing. I, I think sometimes we need to step back and think about our theology on this and say, okay, what what are my goals here? And for you, it's all for you and I. It's always been I want to have the most productive, natural landscape as possible. And and a predator plays a role just like a prey species does. does. And they're all supposed to work um, and play their role. And some of their roles may be more food for the predators, but that's their role. That's why they make huge litters every year. And uh, I, 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 just... I know we're going to get this comment, and, and I, I understand the point of view that the comment would come from, and the comment will be, well, coyotes aren't um, selective on the sex of fawn that they kill or the, the sex of deer that they kill, and I'm managing for, for big bucks. So I could have a, fa- uh, you know, a coyote come in and take – Two yep. button bucks, right? Or, yeah. or two male, male fawns, fawns, right? And I would have let those... I mean, basically, I would have taken two um, doe fawns in, in that next year. Um, but however, in that time frame, those doe fawns that you would have taken to get to that, I guess, recruit them into the season and everything, they're foraging, they're, in some cases, literally damaging your habitat. Because they're so, the number of deer are so out of whack. So again, I, I go back to like, we we can't, we just have to be super, super understanding of, of what we're doing to the habitat or to the environment and understand if I do this, what's going what's gonna to be the result. Yeah. And that's, we've said that so much over the podcast is for every action we do, we need to think about what kind of effect that has, what kind of thumbprint or footprint that's going to have for for however long it may be a long period when it comes to a timber harvest and you mess that up and it's going to be with you for the rest of your life most likely um so everything we do has a an effect on it and so that's why we're trying to be as strategic and smart as possible on really just doing trying to do things that replicates nature in the way it was intended to be managed perfect segue because the other comment that I know we're going to get is, well, you guys like coyotes or, 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 um, no matter what, even if you, if you do all the right habitat work, coyotes will still take an opportunity to take a fawn. We're not saying that even if you have small game present, that a coyote or bobcat, a black bear isn't going to take a meal of, of a fawn. Like they're still going to do that just 
the effect or the, the loss, the extreme loss, is going to be much less. The felt um, pressure on that deer population is going to be much less if you have these other two, like you said earlier, to be a buffer. I think That's a the, natural process. I think of the exactly natural process, survival of the fittest. Uh, it's not a, the coyote's fault for predating on that fawn. No. I would blame, if I'm going to blame anybody, I'm going to either blame the mother of that fawn and say, well, she didn't pick the best place for that fawn to have that fawn. Or I'm going to blame it on me, the manager. I say this all the time. If you're a big landowner, you have big responsibilities. Yes, you do. And so um, I think it, it, when we look at that survival of the fittest, the natural process, and, and the way preda- predation was on the landscape was they predated on the on the sicklings, the weak, to where you had this passed on generation to generation of, of the strong, um, smart, stealthy type animals breeding and, and passing that on. And now, if we affect to remove the predators, we have we we don't have that same genetic process going down the line. So that's something. I mean, you and I can't manage for that, really, but that's something to kind of think about when you look at this landscape of how we're trying to really affect it with our trapping and, and removal of predators, and that's something to have uh, concern about. So. And again, if if you do have way too many predators on the landscape and and you need to remove them, then do, do it. it. Again, it's a balance. You have to just weigh it out um, and just not go... Uh, hog heaven or to war and not even understand the implications I, of that i hate the line I, ha- I hate this line i'm gonna kill every one of them yeah <sighs> and it's just like what you did you wake up today and think you're god like <laughs> why do you think you have the right to go and kill every one of them now and it's never gonna happen by the way <laughs> yeah. yeah but i think i think it's you know south carolina comes up where people coyotes not a natural not native to that area but there were native predators to that area um so it's just there's always you know know your landscape know what what's there and and manage it accordingly if you do have too many predators remove a portion of them try to do your part but don't focus just on one because if you're trying to manage on for for quail or or small game species then you need to focus on raccoons and other nest predators just as much and a coyote can actually predate on on those smaller nest predators so keep that in mind to where you don't focus on just the one but you try to just remove the predators uh, or knock them down i mean remove a portion of them so here we're, we're tying this back into some recent studies out of uh, penn state and if you follow their blog um, you can subscribe to it and they'll send out uh, weekly blogs about uh, stuff that they're doing, research that they're working on, uh, and and it's typically really really solid information. Um, and they have been releasing some uh, here recently, talking about their analysis of lots and lots and lots of fawn survival studies that have been um, research that has been conducted across the country, across varying landscapes, um, and lots of data points for them to analyze and understand. So we're going to kind of, in conjunction with that video we watched, walk you through um, some of the findings um, and, and touch on them. And, and some of the other things we're going to bring up is um, the habitat in which you're going to have the most success for fawns. And, and it goes back again to what we have been talking about and leading into, um, which is diversity. So one of the first things that they talk about is the three ways, the three different types of ways that fawns die or perish. So basically these studies all put radio tracking collars on fawns. They check them every day. They if they get a mortality signal, they'll go in and try and inspect, okay, what happened to this fawn? How did it die? Um, and then they're able to determine that based on if it is predated on, hopefully they can do a necropsy um, and look at you know, bite marks, the way the fawn was stored or stashed, um, and just take do a forensic analysis on this fawn. Um, or sometimes it's just simple. The fawn was abandoned, uh, hit by a car. So there's Predation is one group. Natural cause, which would be like the starvation um, or abandonment. And then the third way is by humans, um, 
which could be a car wreck, could be uh, a tractor or an implement running over it. So those are the, the three different ways. And to no, no big surprise, predation is the most likely factor for fawns being killed in that in all say. these studies right and and i guess i, I go back and, and would look at this and say okay which is which is i don't question that at all i totally believe it because of the lack of habitat that's present um across the landscape they and again these these studies it's a compilation of many many studies from agricultural land mixed land which is forest and agriculture and then just forested land so it's looking across a massive sample size and about 65 percent of fawn mortality was caused because of predators um, about 10 percent was humans and about 20 percent was natural causes um, so that's kind of the, the breakdown of why what happened um, to this fawn and those that average um, and, and then we're going to look at the landscape and the differences um, of predation in those areas. So, Adam, was it any surprise to you that predators were was number one on that list? No, not at all. Not at all. Did you think natural mortality would have been higher or, or less? Uh, I would say, no, that's about where I would imagine it. Um, maybe, maybe a little, a little less, honestly. Uh, but I, I, predators was the biggest thing to me. I mean, if, if they weren't there, mama would take care of them. Um, and we wouldn't, to me, it would be, it wouldn't take very long for that population to explode and be way out of control. Um, so it's about where I would expect it on on the mortality or the whole breakdown of, of all the whole breakdown of it. Yeah. And and I, but I mean, if you were to tell me, okay, here's uh, you've got the three types, mankind, um, natural, and then predator, I'm going to say probably, and I'm going to say predator, and then most likely um, mankind being the number two. Mm-hmm. So it's it's really not too shocking, but I think uh, if you really sit down and break it break it down, I think what is interesting is the three types of landscape and how that changes with the different types. Right, right, and that's what we're talking about next is the they have again three different types of, of landscape they've categorized each one of these studies and then and then analyzed um forest mixed which is 50 50 agriculture to forest land and then agriculture land and this is looking at um specifically the human mortality rate so that that about 10 percent um of that mortality proportion of mortality so We've got in forested ground, just over. It's not even. It's not even ten percent. It looks like it's like two percent, which totally makes sense. If you're in a big forest, what's the what's the opportunity for a human to really come across the fawn and find it and and then cause it harm, right? <laughs> yeah. If it runs into a person in the timber, that person's just walking. So unless right. they have a vendetta against that that fawn, their chances are they're not going to kill them. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then the other one is we look at agriculture and that's about basically, I would say, I'm looking at a graph, 16%. Um, and then the mixed is actually the highest. And we look at that and say 25 ish percent, um, of mortality by humans in those, in each one of those respective, um, categories, categories of land. So in simple terms, basically where human disturbance or human mortality was caused in the more broken up landscape. Correct. The 50-50. Yes. And it was the least amount of human uh, killing was in the forested. And then it was a little bit higher in the crop country. Yes. And I think that you you and I talked about this before, but they were actually planning on, they they thought before um, that the crop country would have the highest human mortality because of the amount of equipment and crop planting and everything like that. But as you and I talked, um, you know, during fawning season, you look across at cornfields and and crop country, a lot of them get tilled under. So there's no reason for a fawn or a a, a adult doe to say, I'm going to go have a fawn in the dirt patch. Right. And so, but where she will is 
more hay country. And I, it, Which, we've heard this. You and I both come from crop or not crop ground, cattle country, hay country, where people cut hay in fawning season. This is the window that those those uh, disc binds are, are firing up, and it is prime fawn dropping time frame, and that's when they're getting into the fields. And, and so that's when they get killed by, yeah. And, and that's why, you know, in large agriculture land, you're not typically farming the, the smaller um, 50-50 ratios of land. That's where you get a lot of the cattle pasture, a lot of the cattle farm, um, which is why you're going to have m- much more of this hay production in that mixed landscape than you would looking at the agricultural crop ground. Um, so, right, you have basically those open fields are either a lot of cover in the hay ground or bare dirt or very minimal dirt, uh, very minimal cover, excuse me, uh, debris in the agriculture. Even even here in the Ozarks, um, if you find just in the difference of habitat or difference of the landscape is where you when you get into bigger fields, that's when you start seeing more of the people are planting corn for silage. Mm-hmm. But whenever you get in the more fragmented landscape, that's when people focus more on grazing and exactly. cutting hay. Exactly. And, which is right there when, when you look at a fawning's chance of running into a human if it's going to survive or die, it would most likely be when they're cutting hay. And it, that happens in the more fragmented landscapes, specifically here in the Ozark Mountains. And I'm sure, based on that research, it travels across the country in oh, that same Oh, for form. sure. You look at you know, Tennessee, Kentucky, Virginia, all these areas that are um, have a large cattle presence or horse farms, um, they're going to have such a – they're basically going to take a, a massive hit during this time frame. Um, so I, I thought that was – you know, pretty interesting to look at the different habitat types and how humans just disturb them, disrupt them. Um, and basically what opportunity, and we're talking about cover wise, are we giving these, the deer population, the does to have successful fawns? Yeah. Cause we're talking, if, if, if the best place is to have a fawn in the fescue pasture, pasture or, or fescue field, hay field. It's, there's a problem. It, it, right. There, there's a problem of, okay, the right habitat's not in place, or there are so many deer that... The, the social the, stress the, pushes her to have the fawn yeah, in the secluded so many, area. Yeah. yeah. The, the biggest does get the best areas to fawn. Um, so they're pushing them out into these less um, ideal areas for fawns, fawning, and uh, you're you're taking the heat from it, basically. Um so there's there's a lot of things to look at and and ponder. Um, there's so many variables as as well, obviously. But think about it. Think about where you live. I guess that brings up the interesting point. Let's just stop cutting hay. <laughs> Mind blown. That is uh, a, I, that if, is a, if we were to ever see that in our lifetime, uh, I would tip my hat we, to a lot of we people. We will hopefully Woo. see it on our farms, but uh, trying to do that over the landscape would it probably ain't ever going to happen. So. Um, but I think there are ways to avoid it, and that is by improving the habitat outside of those fields to where they have their fawns not in your fescue perennial cool season grass hay fields. So yeah. I, I think about it how many times so we ought to have, or I just talked to a couple people that run custom hay business and see how many fawns they run over in a in a in a year cutting hay because mm-hmm. it almost probably make us throw up because I'm yeah. sure it's a lot. Um, I know as a kid there was one time where they jumped four fawns out of the hayfield. They didn't. They didn't kill any of them. They ran them mm-hmm. out of there. But it's like they could have if they weren't paying attention. Sure, sure. But I think they probably knew you went go to that Keith farm. You better not run over a fawn, <laughs> or you're gonna have two mad boys after you. Right. So and you know, I I go back and and forth about the I guess some of the the quality of that cover. Um, ideal? No, no, but. I've also seen it could be a lot worse, um, and and where fawns get stashed. Because when I was at working at Quantico, we were doing these the fawn survival studies, and some of the areas there was the main side, and then there's all these training areas. Some of the fawns that we would find were tucked up against buildings. Basically, the, a doe would put their back against um, a building and say, "You know, nothing's coming from here." So then you can see everything approaching, and hopefully that fawn would be able, basically be able to run. So we'd get calls in. Hey, I got a fawn over here by this chain link fence and nestled by some taller grass or this and that. I, I look at that hayfield, I'm like, I've seen a lot worse. Yeah. You know, it, it's cool. There's some cover. Um, but my gosh, 
there's better. There's early successional habitat. There's edge feather, feathering, soft edges. Um, there's there's clear cuts um, that you could be doing. Fallow or just, fields. Yeah, fallow fields, which um, never, ever gets talked Woodlands, about ever. <laughs> savannas. So the habitat types could be, could be much better um, than what we're seeing. A lot of fawns either perishing in or, or ho- hopefully if they do wait to cut, they're, they are getting through and, and making it. But Or old enough to run out of the way. Yeah, no doubt. Um, that brings up, now I almost it almost slipped my mind, and I'm trying to rally the troops up in my head and between my ears to remember what the point was. Um, and doggone it, I'm afraid it slipped my mind. But, um, <laughs> did, it, the, did it, the troops retreat? They did. <laughs> they went home for dinner. Um, I, I, I'll think of it here in a little while because it was a point that we wanted to address. I know we talked about it early on. Uh, it, it must have been a real good one, too, if I can't remember it. But, right. Um, I think that just the whole mindset of cutting hay and, and, and understanding where you can put better fawning habitat, and that goes right into what we just said. Of There's so many different things we can do to improve it um, with the edge feathering to where you can, you can make these areas right on the edge of your food plot. It's just the additional work, and, and, and that's why it's so beneficial because – you're not only increasing the chances of a, of a fawn surviving, but you're you're improving the edge to where your mature deer feel safer in those areas because they have better escape cover, or, or, or they're just more they feel more comfortable being in your food plots. Or if 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 I was in my shoes with this knowledge when I was ten to twenty back home, what I would do and recommend is, well, my dad, he's never going to stop cutting hay. That's just part of it. That's the way, honestly, we have to make a living. There's just no way around that. So I would be along the timber line. I would be doing these soft edges, knowing that, okay, they want to be here, but I, I can I can increase this um, fawning cover so much better if I just create this edge. And that could be done with a chainsaw. I could have I done that during that time frame, but I didn't have, obviously, the understanding knowledge that, do now but i'm i just want to do something instead of saying well that's just the way it is i want i want to do something um so hopefully that's going to help someone say next spring i'm not going to lose as many fawns in the hayfield. i'm going to give them a better opportunity to survive i'm not going to affect dad i'm not going to ask him to you know not cut all of it or take an acre out so i can have a food plot i'm just going to make my my edge of the timber and field a soft edge and blend it so much better. Let's just go back to that social stress. When we talk about the the mature does or the adult does, the dominant ones will get the best areas for fawns. That's why it's important to break up that landscape, to have edge feathering around your food plots, mm-hmm. to have those planted native grasses um, within the perimeter of the food plots, all your food plots. That's why it's important to have broken up clear cuts or bedding thickets, more aggressive TSI in pockets, to where you have just scattered scattered across the landscape um, better fawning habitat to where every doe on your place that's that's makes a large part of her life on there, she has a place to go have a fawn where that fawn has a great chance of surviving mm-hmm. to where you're not having five or ten or however many does that have ideal and the other ones have to go lay out in the fescue and hope hope that they don't get run over by the, exactly. by the tractor. So that's why it's important to break it up, fragment your landscape, and provide that opportunity for all your does and turkeys to have nests right there amongst all that stuff as well to where you have – a opportunity for a very healthy population down the road. You know, we get so upset about fawns that don't make it, but do we do we have success or or do we feel enjoyment, uh, fulfillment? I guess uh, of when they do survive. You know what I mean? Like we should be celebrating. Oh, I had this many survive. I'm seeing this many recruit uh, when they start showing up show camera. You know, August. Oh, this was much better than this past year. Maybe it's because of the work you've done. Instead of just fretting over, oh, I lost one. I found the remains, or or my farmer he he mowed over it. There's something that can be said about using that energy of disappointment and putting it towards habitat improvement. So then you're not focused on the bad. But then the good of how many more are recruited in the in the years. I remember to come. what it was. The troops came back. Yeah, there they are. Um, so when we talked about the mice and the rabbits and everything, where they had so many, on average, an adult doe is going to have one or two. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, very rarely, you'll see 
triplets in yeah. the wild because it, that brings up. Did you see the video of the fall on the head quads? Uh. Uh-uh. And the my, doe that had my, quads. Did I say fawn? Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's that's really something. The doe that had fawn had quads. Uh, my wife showed it to me, and I'm like, really? Well, I go in there, and then she's laying in like it looks like a yard, mm-hmm. high fence all around her. <laughs> oh, yeah. Another doe comes walking by, like, oh, Susie, you're having your fawns. Oh, yeah. that's cool. Nice. She had tag. four of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool necklace. Yeah. And so uh, I think about that, like. In, in the wild, you're going to see one or two, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, you see two a lot more when the population is really healthy. Um, to where you compare that to a rabbit or a, a field mouse, and you think, okay, well, if a doe has one and that dies to predation, and that happens on a regular occurrence throughout the property, population is going to hurt. Yep. But if you have more rabbits and all those other small game species to where hopefully they're feeding and those fawns have a chance to survive, that's the way it was intended. So. I- I guess, and this is just a number standpoint, not a value of the animal, but you have more to lose with rabbits and these mice and voles on a property than you do with deer because there's just more of them. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so the the third main thing out of the, out of this study, um, and this is talking about just the predators, the breakdown of, of predators, um, there were three main predators that... Um, that basically accounted for all the predation on fawns and those black bears. And they said canine species, which will include coyotes and domestic dogs, and then bobcats. Um, they kill 83% of the fawns that died of predation. Those three um, kind of took the cake there with with bringing the bulk of predation. Um, that yes, domestic dogs do take some, but they can't basically in, in the measuring of, of the bite marks and the teeth marks and all this stuff um, – you can't determine whether it's a domestic dog or coyote very, very easily. So they just kind of group them together. Um, but all those three, black bears, coyotes, domestic dogs, bobcats, 83%. The other 17%, um, 14 was unknown predators. They just could not tell based on the what was left, the remains. Bigfoot. Yeah, right. And then uh, 3% was uh, a random fox. Aliens. Aliens, yeah. <laughs> Sucked up in the UFO. Oh. So, Hopefully, I, I, I hope this podcast opens some eyes, opens some ears, and gets people a little more aware of uh, managing for the small game species. You know, the end of this, it's just me trying to slide in and justify people managing for quail. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. But if you manage for quail, like it, that was a question I had today on Habitat Manager. The guy asked, is good quail habitat good deer habitat and vice versa it was like well good quail habitat usually means good deer habitat but not but just because you have deer doesn't necessarily mean you have quail absolutely Uh, big difference and and that goes with when he asked about food plots is like well you can't plant monocultures for for quail and expect them to thrive they need the diversity of of plants to bring in a diversity of insects um, to bring in a diversity of food during the winter months so Um, definitely a big difference. So if we can manage for these small game species and bring their populations back, I promise you it will help out your big game species in the long run. And, and guess where all that starts working in the habitat for sure. Done. I I hope, I hope that was, uh, at least a little insightful for some people and, and gave some direction on what to do, how to analyze what's going on in the habitat and know before you do something, um, we, we talked about Adam, uh, most common land management failures, not have a plan. And, and the, the plan is important to understand what am I doing here? Where am I going? Understand the direction. So for sure. Let's do our, would you rathers? Okay. Would you rather, I'm just throwing one out there. Would you rather fight a mountain lion or a grizzly bear? Ooh, ooh, at, we're, we're camping out West oh, we're and we camping. hear something outside the tent. And I say, wait, we're, we're sharing a tent? Yeah, well, yeah, we're camping. I ain't packing two tents in there. Well, there's all of us. I was picturing a canvas wall oh, tent. Oh, okay. So thank God. There's Ooh. a... We're doing them little pup You tents. brought your earplug. <laughs> yeah. It's a one-man tent. we got to share it because you're too scared to sleep outside with the bears and snakes. <laughs> so anyway, if, if there's something outside and you go outside to fight it off, would you rather it be a grizzly bear or a mountain lion? Oh, God. <laughs> Dude, I'm in the fetal position either way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think I'd rather fight a grizzly bear than a mountain lion. Really? Yeah. Cats are mean, man. They are mean. They're agile. 
and and I I know how I I'm gonna handle fight. a grizzly I'm bear. Fighting. I'm gonna stick my hand down his throat. I think a guy survived because of that. Yeah, the one guy. <laughs> the one guy. I'll be the second guy. Yeah, that, it looked like it ate his arm first. Right. So. Oh, gee whiz. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, uh, you threw that one out there. Would you rather? Knowing the predation rate, the high predation rate, and your potential role in life, would you rather be born a rabbit or a mouse and have lots of little brothers and sisters? <laughs> oh, man. A mouse. I feel like I have a better chance at hiding. Okay. Yeah. Good luck, that's... brother. <laughs> yeah. All right. That was two very random would-you-rathers, but we were kind of tired of doing the whole other stuff for, for this week, so... Anyway, hopefully you guys enjoyed this week's podcast. Please go give us a review on our Facebook page or over on Stitcher or iTunes. Um, there's been a couple really nice ones here lately. And you guys, when we get the hats ready, you're going to get one, I promise you. So, And those are still progressing. We've got lots of cool stuff um, coming with those, lots of new advancements. All so. right, sounds good. Hopefully uh, we will catch you next time. We'll see ya. Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you like what you hear, check us out at landandlegacy.tv. You can submit a viewer question right there, and we're answering on the podcast, or find us on Facebook and Instagram. Feels pretty good knowing that from the beginning of time, God has called us to be a caretaker, a gamekeeper, a manager of the land. So with that being said, don't you think we should do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God?